My name's Jacob. I'm the worship leader here at King's Cross Church. All year long during 2023, we've been working our way through the Bible in a sermon series called The Story. Thank you for joining us today as we wrap up the last sermon of the series. Next week, we'll be kicking off a brand new exciting series called New Year Old Habits, where we'll look at six different ancient habits that help us draw closer to God. For more information about our church, visit kingscross.org. May the grace and peace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Happy New Year, King's Cross. Good to see you. Glad that you are here. If you are out in the lobby, uh, blame me because um, I underestimated you. So thank you for being here. Um, I, I thought, man, we've got a lot of people traveling, a lot of people who've got things going on, and um, it'd probably be like the lowest attended Sunday of the year. Um, and I just completely whiffed on that. So I'm sorry, and uh, thank you for being in the lobby. We appreciate that. Uh, we did have, Josh mentioned, we had over 500 people here on um, on Christmas Eve. That's the largest single day we've ever had in the history of the church. Um, and so thank you for praying and, um, and for inviting people. Uh, if you have been with us all year, congratulations. We made it to the end of the story. Um, if you're brand new and this is your first time, welcome. You are not um, going to be lost uh, coming in. You don't need to have been here to, to take something away from the passage that we're going to look at today. Um, I, I would say If you have never heard uh, any sermon about Jesus or looked at any biblical text, this is a great place to start because it talks about the promises uh, of God. And so um, I can't think of a better way uh, to begin walking with the Lord than to to look at the text we're going to look at today. So if you have a Bible, take it out. Um, We are going to be in the book of Revelation. Revelation, if you don't know, is all the way at the end of the Bible, or if you're on your phone, you have to scroll all the way to the bottom of your screen, Uh, and we're going to be in the last two chapters, chapters 21 and 22, so we are quite literally at the very end of the story. Let me give you just a little bit of background. Revelation records a vision that is given to the Apostle John. John was the last of the 12 disciples um, to die, and uh, it's given to him by God, Uh, It's the last of the prophecies that God gave his people as part of his self-revelation. A lot of times we think about prophecies being in the Old Testament, but Revelation understands itself to be uh, the last prophetic word from the Lord. Uh, If you didn't know anything at all about Revelation and you just started reading it from the beginning, it would seem um, pretty normal to you until about chapter 4. And when you got to chapter 4, the genre in which it's written kicks in. Um, And if you're not familiar with that genre, it can be a little bit uh, disorienting to you, confusing. It can come across as a little bit strange. So um, if I don't give you a few handles about the genre of literature that it's written in, then when I start reading, you're going to think the text is weird and I'm weird and you're going to wonder where I got this stuff from. So um, the, the genre apocalyptic... Um, is heavy in a couple of things. One is symbolism, especially animal uh, symbolism. The other is numerology, and it uses a lot of recapitulation. And so if you think about instant replay, um, if you were watching games over the last few days and you, you see a play and then they show you from the sideline angle and then it's the end zone angle and then it's the other, that, that's recapitulation. And it uses kind of literary instant replay, so it doesn't flow in a linear sense the way that maybe a historical 
book would. And so sometimes those literary devices seem foreign to us, but they would not have been foreign to the original Jewish audience that was receiving the letter from John as it's being passed around the churches. And so um, don't feel like that's something um, hard to grasp. You already understand different genre interpretation. So you know that you read poetry, whether it's Shakespeare or Amanda Gorman, you, you're, you read that different than you would the front page of a newspaper, different than you would a Stephen King novel, right? And so sometimes what can happen with Revelation is that people never look at it because they think it's so weird and it's so strange and it's so confusing. Um, it's so scary and mystical. We just need to stay away from it. Sometimes people become so obsessed with Revelation that they become weird and scary and mystical. <laughs> and so it's like, hey, you know. And so understand God did not reveal these things to us to confuse us. He like, he's not trying to scare us. He and the Holy Spirit didn't want to have a good laugh as we try to take the events from the newspaper today and line them up with certain chapter and verses. That's not the purpose of Revelation. He revealed these things to us as a promise of what's to come when Jesus makes all things new again. This is the point of Revelation. In Revelation 21.5, the apostle writes, He who is seated on the throne said... Behold, I'm making all things new. And also he said, write this down. These words are trustworthy and true. And what follows is a description of what John calls a new heaven and a new earth in Revelation 21.1. And so if you're someone whose primary understanding of eternity, of heaven, of the afterlife, if you're primarily taking that from Looney Tunes, like, so maybe you're my age and, and you think, well, what eternity is, is we're all semi-transparent and we float around on clouds in like a robe and we play a harp in an eternal choir practice. Right? That is not biblical, okay? Don't take your theology from Bugs Bunny. Instead, we want to consider what God says eternity will be like and what God says will be true when Jesus makes all things new again. He shows us at least eight realities of what it will be like when Jesus makes all things new. Um, and we're going to look at them together. So first, when Jesus makes all things new, the promises of God will be fulfilled. The promises of God will be fulfilled. Revelation 21, we're going to start with verse 9. We're just going to work our way through the passage. So if you have your Bible open, just leave it there. I think you'll be, you'll be helped. We're going to start with verse 9. Then came one of the seven angels who had seven bowls full of the seven last plagues. Those, the, the details of these bowls of wrath are found in chapter 16. And um, we're not going to get into that for our purpose um, what, what's most important is that John is saying that what he's about to describe comes after the final judgment. So we're, we're getting a chronological setting. The angel spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. That's the church. The church is defined as the, or identified as the bride of Christ in chapter 19, verse 10. 
He carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain, and he showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. So two things there. First, the biblical picture of eternity is that heaven comes down and merges with earth. And so we're not floating away into another realm and the earth is being done away with. What John sees is the heaven coming down and there's a new heaven and a new earth. And second, this is almost an identical description of the way God gave the Old Testament prophet Ezekiel a vision. And he gave Ezekiel a vision up on a high mountain of a future temple, a future city, and a future land that surrounded the temple that was inside of the city in Ezekiel 40 to 48, um, about 600 years before the birth of Christ. So John is seeing a a similar vision. More on that in just a minute. Verse 11. Um, So the Jerusalem's coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. And again, that is a very nearly identical description of the prophecy given through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 58 and 60, where the future coming of the glory of the Lord was announced about 700 years before Christ. And so as you start to read the chapter, what might seem like just the setting that John is just giving kind of this preamble of, well, here's what's going on when I saw what I saw. But even the setting of what he is being shown here at the end of the story um, makes it clear that the promises of God are being fulfilled. Second, when Jesus makes all things new, the people of God will be there. The people of God will be there. We've already seen the church, those who have repented of their sin and placed their faith in Christ in verse 9. But then we get a a deeper description, if you will, of the people of God. We pick it up at verse 12. It, the city, had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates 12 angels, and on the gates the names of the 12 tribes of the Son of Israel were inscribed. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. So two things happen here. First, Ezekiel's vision of a, a temple in a city surrounded by land has merged into one reality. One great temple city. And then second, both the Old Testament and the New Testament people of God have merged into one reality, a unified singular people of God. The 12 tribes of Israel in verse 12, those are the covenant people of God who were saved by faith in the Old Testament. The 12 apostles in verse 14 represent the covenant people of God saved by faith in the New Testament. And so what you have is the people of God, all the people of God, are now together in the great temple city that John is being shown. Third, when Jesus makes all things new, the dwelling place of God will be with them. So the people of God are there and the dwelling place of God is with them. Verse 15. 
The one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. This, again, parallels Ezekiel's vision with this measuring. Measuring is a a symbolic way of both um, establishing and securing the city. And, And so this is what's happening. Verse 16, the city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. So the city's length, width, and height are the same. Math majors, that makes it what? A cube. That's right. That's right. If you're an English major, you struggle with geometry, that's okay. Right? There's forgiveness. It's a cube. Right? So every Jewish reader would have immediately thought when they heard this description of the inner sanctuary of the temple, of the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant topped with the mercy seat of God was kept, the symbolic place of divine presence. 1 Kings 6.20 tells us that that space in the temple was a perfect cube. In the temple, it was 20 cubits on each side. But now, watch this, the entire temple city is a cube. The the whole of it has become a holy place where the presence of God dwells. And John says this cubed city is 12,000 stadia on each side. Now, you don't know what stadia is, but if you do the math on it, that's about 1,400 miles. So this is one large city that, if you were going to take it literally, would be like a single city where one side extended from Charleston to Amarillo, Texas, and then north to Saskatchewan, Canada, and back around again. And keep in mind, it's vertical 1,400 miles. Officially, space, like when you're outside of the Earth's atmosphere, starts roughly 62 miles off the Earth's surface. Okay, So John's not being literal here. We don't need to do the math and figure out how many cubic feet does each person need to live for all of eternity and then how many people can we get inside. That's, his point is, this is an impossibly large all-encompassing, holy temple city in which God dwells with his people. The presence of God is there. It's it's so big, you, you just can't even imagine how big it is. And the wall around it measures 144 cubits, which is about 200 feet. Now, does a 200 foot tall wall protect a city that's 1,400 miles high? No. So the wall is not there for security. Again, it's symbolic. 144 is 12 times 12. It's another symbolic number that points us to the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles of Jesus. And so the wall around the city defines it. It demarcates it. Right? What defines this city, this holy, eternal temple city, is the people of God and the presence of God. That's what demarcates, that's what signifies, defines the city, as it were. Fourth, when Jesus makes all things new, the people of God will be priests to God. The people of God will be priests to God. 
We'll keep going to verse 18. The wall was built of jasper while the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. If you've ever wondered how come all the jokes start with St. Peter at the pearly gates, these are the pearly gates, right? Um, they're actually pearl gates, but that's a different joke. Precious stones. Say, so, well, what's up with all these stones? Well, the precious stones are the same ones described in Exodus 28 as being worn on the breastplate of the high priest on the day of atonement when he goes into the temple. The streets of gold remind us of 1 Kings 6.30 where Solomon overlaid the inner sanctuary of the temple. The inner sanctuary was only accessible by the priest who served God and Solomon overlaid it with gold. The priests in service of God walked on gold. Now, in the new heaven and the new earth, all God's people have been made priests to their God serving in his presence in an endless temple city so pure that even its foundations are made of precious stones and its gates impossibly large pearls. And thus the promises of God in Exodus 9 and Isaiah 61 and 1 Peter 2 are realized as the people of God have become a kingdom of priests. Fifth, When Jesus makes all things new, the glory of God will be on display. Glory of God will be on display. Verse 22 and 23. I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. Remember I said Ezekiel's vision, he saw a temple in a city. But now in the eternal city, they've become one. And John says there's not a temple there, right? Because the entire city is the temple. The city has no need of sun nor moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. John is not giving an astrological reality about the literal sun and moon. Rather, he is communicating that the literal glory of the presence of God, formerly in the old days, confined to the holy of holies in the inner sanctuary of the temple, that glory of God has now burst forth and is on display in the entirety of the new creation. The whole cosmos radiates with the glory of the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. Sixth. When Jesus makes all things new, the gospel of God will be unending. The gospel of God will be unending. Verse 24. By its light, by its light, he means by the the light of the glory of God the Almighty and the Lamb, will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. And they will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. 
But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. The Lamb's book of life contains the names of all those who have embraced the gospel. Those who have come to a place of repentance and by faith they have placed their faith in Christ and they have received grace from God and been forgiven of their sins, declared righteous and granted eternal life. Their names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And having been justified by faith and declared righteous by God in life, they have now been made perfect. They've now been glorified in the new heaven and the new earth. Then and, or they rather, they and only they have access to God in the new creation. And the language here is definite, right? The gates never close. But no one whose name is not written in the Lamb's book will ever pass through them. The time of repentance has gone. The time for skepticism and questions and whatabouts and oh yeah, but how about that? It, that is no more. Now there is only the redeemed and the damned. And the good news, the gospel of God has now been made manifest. Its reality is present. The people of God can go in and out of the presence of God, never to be barred for any reason again for all of eternity. The gospel has become unending. Seventh, as, and understand, let me just as an aside, understand I'm leaving like a lot on the table. Okay, we could do a study in this and go miles deep by verse by verse. By verse. We just don't have time to do that this morning. And so if you're a, a, a Revelation um, aficionado and, and you think, well, you didn't say, I know that. I know I didn't say it, um, but there's just a lot there. Maybe one day we'll do a series on just these two chapters, and, but that'll be down the road. Seventh, um, as we move into chapter 22, we see that when Jesus makes all things new, the garden of God will be restored. The garden of God will be restored. Revelation 22, verses 1 and 2. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, brought as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And thus, in the final chapter of the Bible, we get back what we lost in the beginning. We began the year in the Garden of Eden, situated between rivers, radiating out from the tree of life. Our first parents dwelt there in the very presence of God. Their sin and ours banished us from that place, from God's presence. For what is unholy cannot be in the presence of the holy. It brought us, did our sin and theirs, the curse of death, of strife, of relational and emotional and physical pain. It brought us infinite loss. But here... 
the garden has been restored. It, too, has become one with the temple, with the city of God, with the new heaven and the new earth. And once again, the people of God are in the presence of God, and they are back into the perfect creation of God. The garden has been restored. Eight, when the creation is restored, the redeemed of God are back into the place where he created us to be. The curse of sin will be no more. Curse of sin will be no more. Verses three to five. No longer will there be anything accursed. But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, in the new heaven and the new earth, this great temple city, this restored creation. And his servants will worship him, and they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. And they will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. In Genesis 1, God created man and woman in his image, and he tasked them to rule over his good creation. He delegated authority to them. They were to be co-regents with him, delegated authority over the creation. In Genesis 3, the sin of the man and the woman resulted in our expulsion from his presence. And curses in Genesis 3 were handed down by God to the serpent and to the woman and to the man, and last of all, to the creation itself. And here, the consequences, the curses of sin are no more. Nothing is cursed. We see God face to face again, as our first parents did. And now we are restored to being those who reign with God, co-heirs with Christ to a cosmic kingdom. We are his image bearers perfectly once again. The garden is restored, the curse is removed, and all things are made new. Eternity is not spent wearing robes floating around on clouds with a harp. Eternity is spent in the merging of the new heaven and the new earth, a place where God's original purpose and plan are taken up again, a place with streets and walls and culture and music and food and art and relationships and animals and trees and fruit, a place where we have things to do, where we have callings from God a place where the promises of God will be fulfilled, where the people of God will live forever and God will dwell amongst them, where we will step back into our original role as priests to and of our God, whose glory will be on display in all the cosmos, whose gospel, having come to its fullness, will be unending, where the garden has been restored and sin is no more. And life is once again the way God intended it to be. There's an epilogue that makes up the rest of chapter 22. If you were to keep reading in verse 7, Jesus says, Behold, I am coming soon. 
In verse 12, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me. In the final words of God's self-revelation, verses 20 and 21 of chapter 22, He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with us all. Amen. Three times in 15 verses, I am coming soon. 53 weeks ago, we began this study with Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And over the year, we have studied the covenant promises that God has made. We have seen together his steadfast love and faithfulness on display as he had, has fulfilled those promises in the person and work of his only son, who he sent because he loved us so much that all who believed in him might not perish, but would have this eternal life, experiencing these realities when Jesus makes all things new again. Friends, that God we have been studying together does not change. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is not going to start breaking his promises now. Only God the Father knows the day and the hour that will define soon. But that day is coming. And when it comes, that will be the end of the beginning. In the sermon in the series with this. In the conclusion of his chapter on eschatology, which is just a fancy way of saying the, the doctrine of last things, the doctrine of end times. Um, in a book called Theology for the Tur- Church, Dr. Russell Moore writes this. He says, quote, Not many churches have graveyards anymore, and that's a shame. This book, like all systematic theology texts, will one day wither away into mold and dust, The Library of Congress will be swept away like refuse. If one really wants to see a theology for the church in action, one might walk into an old church graveyard at night. Walk about and see the headstones weathered and ground down by the elements. Contemplate the fact that beneath your feet are men and women who once had youthful skin and quick steps and hectic calendars, but who are now piles of forgotten bones. Think about the fact that the scattered teeth in the earth below you once sang hymns of hope. Maybe when the roll is called up yonder, I'll be there, or when we all get to heaven. They're silent now. But while you are there, think about what every generation of Christians has held against the threat of sword and guillotine and chemical weaponry. This stillness will one day be interrupted by a shout from the eastern sky, a joyful call with a distinctly northern Galilean accent. And that's when life gets really interesting. Let's pray. Father, you have been so kind to us that on a day when so many around us will be thinking about what comes next year, what will come um, in 2024, we might spend a few minutes thinking together about what comes next. And we might rejoice 
and the truth that you keep your promises. You have not left us alone. You have not forsaken us. Your steadfast love and mercy are new to us every morning. We look forward to the day when the fullness of your gospel is our reality. We look forward to a day when the eastern sky rends itself open and we hear a shout of acclamation and our king returns. And we look forward to the end of the beginning of our story that we might experience the rest of it together with one another and with you for all eternity. In Christ's name, amen. My name's Chip. I'm the lead pastor here at King's Cross Church. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast. We hope that you're growing in the gospel as we work our way through the story. Take a moment to subscribe and you'll get each week's episode automatically. May the grace and peace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all.